Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. We, the collective we, who are not the dominant, are tired of having to say over and over and over again, why do we count less, you know? And why does our counting equally cause us to then have us to spend additional time and effort making comfortable the white person in the room who felt like their foot got trodden? Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life. This is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 135, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film and the Documentary Life podcast. Seventeen years ago, I began working on documentary films over in Southeast Asia. As you'll know if you're a regular listener of the show, originally it was to work on someone else's film, a Fulbright Scholarship awardee about the remaining UXO and its effects on the lives of the Cambodian people. Following on from my six months living in Cambodia and making that film, it became a place that I have continued to have a strong connection with, returning many times over the years to do both commercial and documentary work, raising and schooling my children there for periods of time, and living and traveling to and through the heart of urban and rural communities alike. It is a place that is near and dear to my heart. On one such trip to Cambodia in 2013, where I was hired to shoot some promotional video for the resort of a Cambodian businessman, I decided to make a short film, which has since become a feature-length documentary, about a famous Cambodian singer who had lost his life at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. I was taken aback by the love and respect that the Cambodian people had for their most beloved singer, Sun Si Samut, and not only within the country, but even here in America, where my Cambodian-American friends would play his music constantly. For them, the music offered a deep connection to their country, and after the tragedies that had occurred during the genocide in the 1970s and the destruction it had caused, this much-needed sense of love, comfort, and as I said, connection was hugely important. Seeing this really moved me. I loved witnessing the light in their eyes, the emotion that emanated when they sang his songs, how they talked about him and subsequently their country through the lyrics of his songs. I felt that this was an important and somewhat unique story and one that could and would be a celebration of a country's cultural heritage, a country that had been through so much but had historical points of reference that could help its people in some ways to heal. Now, you may ask if I was and am the right person to tell the story of this singer, of this country, and its people. If it was and is my place to tell the story of this man, this beloved artist, when I myself am not Cambodian. And truthfully, I'm not sure if there is a right or a wrong answer to that question. It seems that your position on this subject can be dependent on a number of factors, and it is possibly an area of filmmaking that not everyone is going to be in agreement with. But it is one that has been resonating in my mind significantly over the past few weeks. It is something that I've been wrestling with, reconsidering, and discussing with friends, filmmakers, and colleagues. Not because of any pushback from Cambodians, 
All the Cambodians I have encountered throughout making the film, whether talking about it, helping to translate or film on it, or who I've met through interviews, have been excited and supportive of the film and what we are trying to achieve with it. The only questioning on the subject that I have experienced personally has been a very occasional question from Americans. And when I say occasional, I mean twice in the seven years this film has been in the works. My experience of sharing the film with Cambodians has been one of excitement and joy, and that is what I have chosen to focus on, and what keeps me working on bringing this film to life. It has made me put in over 20 grand of my own money, move my family several times, and keep persevering with that sometimes tricky balance between supporting myself and my family, balancing life with two young children and a business, and spending time and resources on my passion and commitment to see this film through. Make no mistake, as a documentary filmmaker, I am unwavering in my commitment to make the best film possible, to tell a story that I believe is important to be heard and understood. And I have always believed that in order to make this film be the most empathetic and accurate film that it can be, it has been my responsibility, and joy for that matter, to enlist the help of many Cambodians, both domestically and abroad. I have always remained keenly aware that I am a white American man who has not been directly affected by the history or circumstances that the film discusses, and therefore have a responsibility to tell the story as authentically, honestly, and respectfully as possible. And that is what I have always intended to do. Let me tell you a story that I have mentally referred to many times over the course of making Elvis of Cambodia an experience that comes to mind when my ethnicity is called into question, alongside my own moral compass and integrity. Six years ago, Stephanie, my producing partner, and myself were down in Long Beach, California, where the largest Cambodian refugee population in the U.S. live. We were in the middle of our crowdfunding campaign for Elvis, a film that we were set to commence filming on a month and a half later. During that time, we were fortunate enough to be invited to the screener of the documentary film Don't Think I've Forgotten, an in-depth exploration of the history of Cambodian rock and roll. It was directed by filmmaker John Perosi, a colleague who has since become friends of ours. John was actually on the show way back in the early days of the program. We were eager to see this film, not only because there was some obvious crossover with our own project, but also because this film was the labor of love of another American filmmaker who had spent nine years making their passion on Cambodian music come to life. Like myself, John is someone who has spent a lot of time in Cambodia, making commercial and documentary films. He has great love and appreciation for the people and culture of the country. He is now married to a Cambodian-American woman. As much as we were really looking forward to seeing the film, we were not prepared for what we experienced. As the end credits finished and the lights went on for the Q&A, I heard sniffles and people blowing their noses. I looked around me at those in attendance, mostly of Cambodian descent, and there was barely a dry eye in the house, yours truly included. I had never seen a documentary about Cambodia or Cambodian culture that so clearly showed great love and affection and appreciation for a people and its culture. And clearly, the Khmers around me felt the same way. People asked John questions during the Q&A, but mostly he was thanked for bringing this aspect of Cambodian cultural heritage to light. His film serves to celebrate and remember Cambodia's vibrant past to those who experienced it prior to the genocide and for those too young to remember. It gives a visual representation and context of their parents' and grandparents' experiences. 
I have to say that to see the reaction that John's film received from every single one of us in the room that day, regardless of demographics, instilled in me a firm belief that we had to continue to make our film. To make another documentary film that celebrates Cambodian culture and moves the conversation away from the atrocities of the 1970s, which is so often the focus of films made in and about Cambodia. So why am I sharing this with you today? Because for at least the past several weeks, my decision to make a film outside of my own ethnicity has been at the forefront of my mind, both night and day. When I think of that screening experience now, I feel I must challenge myself to look at it through another lens. Even though I know how I felt and what I witnessed from others, the question has now become, did a white filmmaker have the right to make this film, or was it not his place to tell the story? Is it my place to be making my film? Should I, we, only be making films that tell stories of our own races, as has been proposed by some? The discussions we have been experiencing in the documentary community as of late has, I think, prompted all of us to have questions and conversations with ourselves and our filmmaking communities. And for the most part, those conversations have been much needed and progressively intended. The generation of conversation on race, diversity, and equality in filmmaking have sparked important dialogue on aspects of filmmaking opportunity that should be and need to be addressed. There has been a lot of discussion on race and how narratives have been told, are being told, and how to better tell them in the future. At the time of the producing of this episode, there have been online panels put on by both the D-Word and Doc NYC that have moved the conversation forward. Larger figures in the community like Stanley Nelson or Don Porter have hosted some of these panels or written op-eds in prominent newspapers on the subject. Matthew Heineman, a white filmmaker most notably known for the Academy Award-nominated documentary feature Cartel Land, recently came under fire on his Facebook page in a very public fashion when he was promoting his newest documentary about Tiger Woods. Now is a time for all of us to be having open and honest conversations about race in our communities, and not least, our own filmmaking communities. Which is why we set out to have this kind of discussion on TDL. And we did this with two known documentary filmmakers, Marjan Safinia and Grace Lee, both women of color who collaborated on the two-part documentary series, And She Could Be Next, which recently streamed on PBS. And I encourage you to weigh in on this as well. Truly, we would love to hear your thoughts, experiences, and the conversations you are having with yourself and your community too. So after listening to today's episode, I would ask that you head over to The D Word, where as you know, I host the new The Documentary Life podcast forum. I would love to see you there, hear your thoughts, and continue the conversation. I encourage you to become a part of this discussion, because it is an important one to be having. So please head over to d-word.com and check out the Documentary Life podcast forum after listening to today's show. My conversation with Marjan and Grace is coming up next, here on The Documentary Life. So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? 
you don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at thedocumentarylife.com academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. I have the pleasure of bringing on two documentary filmmakers that I've been looking to have conversations with for, for a bit here, and certainly in the times that we are experiencing right now. Um, Madjan Safinia is an Iranian documentary filmmaker whose films examine identity, community, and social justice. Collectively, her films have played at over 100 international film festivals and been broadcast in North America, Europe, and across the Arab world. She co-hosts the preeminent online documentary community, The D Word, and is a regular juror, programmer, speaker, and connector of all things documentary. Grace Lee is an American director and producer. She is known for both her documentaries and narrative films, which often mix in elements of documentaries. In 2002, she was profiled in Filmmaker as one of the new faces of independent film. Her films have included The Grace Lee Project, Janine from Des Moines, and the current project she has done with Majan, and She Could Be Next, a film that is currently streaming for free on PBS. Welcome to the show, Grace and Majan. It's, it's wonderful to have you joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, a big point of emphasis, as you know, in today's conversation will be about race and its representation in documentary films, as well as in the documentary community as a whole. But um, I, should, I should give a disclaimer and, and full disclosure at first. As you can see, I am a 48-year-old privileged white male who's been making documentary films in and out of South and Southeast Asia since 2004. Um, I no doubt am ignorant to so, so much of what the both of you have experienced in terms of women of color in the documentary community. Um, so please, uh, uh, please forgive any ignorance and or naivete in today's conversation. If anything, I'm hopeful that you can give me a much needed understanding of what we in the doc community are dealing with here. Before we get into that, let's have a little context on how you guys came together on your current documentary project and she could be next. How did the two of you first meet and start working on this film? I think we met. Uh, I think we came to a screening. Uh, at Yana's house, right, Marge? It wasn't a, uh, was it at Yana's house? We went to a screening um, of What We Do in the Shadows, which is the vampire mockumentary that Taika Waititi made. And I remember oh. we had a very long conversation on the couch 
about Trayvon Martin, right? It had just, uh, that, that had just happened. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think we met then, which was, I don't know, probably eight, nine, ten years ago now, maybe. Yeah. But um, but we started to work together uh, on this in 2017. Grace, you want to take it from there? Yeah, so, and she could be next. Um, this is a project that the sort of seeds of it started actually in 2013. I was working on a episode of the PBS Maker series about women in politics mm -hmm. and um, I mean, I'm giving you the end, sort of the intro to the series as well. Please, um, yeah. And that was a film about, you know, kind of more historical film about the long, slow fight for equality for women in Congress. And that's when I met Rashida Tlaib, who's now a congresswoman, was then a state representative from Michigan. And it was the first time I actually met somebody who, a, a politician that I actually thought, wow, I would love for someone like that to represent me. I'd never yeah. met somebody like that before. And so, um, you know, sort of keeping that in mind a few years later, our other producer, Jyoti Sarda, had approached me about possibly doing something related to women in politics in 2016. Mm -hmm. This is the year we thought Hillary Clinton might be president, the first woman. Um, but we pivoted, um, well, we didn't pivot. It, it also was a moment where, you know, with shifting demographics in the United States, it felt yeah. like this was the time to tell the story about women of color transforming politics because, yeah. You know, um, women of color have always been the backbone of social movements in this country, and it just felt like a moment to start telling this story. Um, Jodi's not a filmmaker, and I knew this would be an ambitious, huge project. Um, and that's when I started thinking about, well, who who is that person, you know, mm -hmm. who would get it, is also as deeply interested in politics. Um, and I thought of Marge, and I called her, and fortunately, you know, she said yes. <laughs> And we sort of went from there. Majan, maybe you can add to this. Tell me why you think that both of you were the right people to tell this story. Um, I mean, I, we certainly aren't the only people who could have told this story. But, yeah. um, you know, I think we have a, a particular intersection of genuinely being, you know, really politically poli political junkies ourselves. Yeah. But also, um, you know, the telling, the way that we made this project was uh, kind of a political action of our own within our documentary community. Um, you know, uh, we, we both um, are very involved with field building. Um, I was the chair of the uh, board of IDA for many, many years and the D word and Grace right. started ADOC, which is a phenomenal organization for Asian American filmmakers. So we've been fighting these little fights internally within our community about who gets to tell whose stories mm. and why it matters who tells whose stories for some time. And so then this project felt like um, a way to kind of live our uh, principles and to also bring on, as Grace said, the scope of our project was very large and very really complex production. So we also brought on uh, six other uh, women of color uh, documentary storytellers, directors to help us tell the story in the field. And it yeah. just, it felt like a way, um, you know, to, to, to really show that projects can be done differently mm. and can still have big success. Um, and, you know, to sort of, if you like, create a case study for our business to say there's, there's just no excuses to not do things differently, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe either one of you or the both of you dig a little deeper into that when you say things done differently by what you've done with this film, by what you've done in the documentary community. Can we explore that a little bit? I mean, it's not different for me. I mean, I always yeah. try to crew up with 
diverse crews. I've always done that. That's how I was trained. Yeah. The very first filmmaking class I took was at Third World Newsreel, you know, like mm. back in the 90s, you know, and everybody yeah. there was a person of color. Um, it was, it was, I've just been, that's just been my outlook. And that's the kind of, those are the communities I tell stories about. Um, so it's, it's very natural to me. I mean, yeah. um, I think the first time that I didn't have as many diverse crews was when I started going to film school, you know, because it wasn't as diverse. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just, the people are out there and I, you know, especially when we're telling stories about communities of color or communities, you know, we often hear people say like, the people who are closest the, to the pain are the ones who can represent mm. these communities, right? Mm. And I feel like, um, you know, by, you, you bring something different to the table when you're telling a story about a community that is close to you or similar to you or adjacent to you. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think what I, what I mean when I say do it differently is in the larger, you know, this was not a, a small project we had a big, big budget. Scale-wise, yeah. Big ambition, um, you know, the sorts of things where many filmmakers are told that that's kind of too much to bite off but yeah um particularly we were also told um directly and indirectly that you know well who's really going to find this interesting i mean who's really going to find a story about is is women of color really the interesting political mm. story right now you know isn't mm. this just a smaller story about women in general uh, do you two really have what it takes to pull off something of this size I want to be conscious of the fact that yeah. you know, we, we work in a difficult industry. There's not yeah. enough funding or resources or opportunity for anyone. Yeah. But on top of that, um, there is, you know, uh, and it has been proven in other industries, hopefully soon to be proven in our own um, yeah. research. There's a real question mark that hangs over when women of color say, I want a big check to do this thing. That doesn't, you know, that's really an uphill battle. Hmm. And we see it in even the candidates, you know, who we cover, who, right. who share that battle. Right. Um, so it was, when I talk about doing things differently in our industry, it was um, sort of an act of political defiance on our part to really, you know, stay firmly in this lane, unwaveringly in this lane, not to yeah. change our creative vision, yeah. how we were going to do it, and also not to settle for raising less money or paying ourselves or not paying ourselves or any mm. of that kind of bullshit that's mm. also mm. expected of us, you know? And I yeah. think having the two of us and a larger team around us really allowed us to kind of stick to that because there's a lot of messages that tell you, well, if you just compromise a little bit, this will become easier. And um, we didn't have to do that uh, because we can't sort of <laughs> held each other accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think our industry it is changing i think things really have changed in the last however many years um but so many stories are told about communities of color from mm. an outsider perspective often in a victim uh, it's a story about people who need saving somehow right and often without an understanding or a centering of the power of the people whose stories that you are telling and an understanding that you know, the reinvestment of accolades, whatever comes your way, needs to push them further forward, right? It's not not push us. And so I think we can all think of examples, which I shan't name because I'm too well brought up, but uh, we can all think of examples of stories that um, really should have been told by somebody who looked quite different right. and weren't and went on to have great success and probably, you know, um, somebody else could have really used that opportunity. 
what I, what I'd love to get right into, uh, I think I mentioned to you guys. I don't I, well at the outset of this, a lot of the documentary, some commercial work that I do, tends to emanate from South and Southeast Asia since about 2004, in particular uh, the countries of Nepal and Cambodia. And one of the things that I personally come up with, certainly um, on on more than one occasion, is this idea of why are you the person to tell our story? Now, what's interesting about that is where I don't run that into that would be, um, for example, in the case of Cambodia. I can honestly say in the years that I've worked in Cambodia, I don't think I've ever heard a Cambodian question why I'm making a film other than why are you so interested in our culture? Why do you want to tell the story of our people or this story um, of this segment of the culture? It's in, it's in the U.S. where I've run into that. It's Cambodian Americans that have questioned, why are you a person of privilege, a, a white male going into Cambodia and telling the story of Cambodians? Um, even uh, Riti Pan, uh, the most famous filmmaker, obviously, to come out of Cambodia, Academy Award nominee, um, had a discussion with both Steph and I, and he was absolutely supportive of us telling us our current project, which is about the most famous singer to come out of that world. That, of course, meant an awful lot that Ritti Pan would give us the support. Ritti is also has a school that he started years ago, a few years ago called the Bopan Institute in an attempt to empower Cambodians to be able to tell their stories, doc filmmakers, Cambodian doc filmmakers to be telling their stories. I definitely am challenged and struggle with this idea myself. I often think, why am I telling this story other than I have a passion for the culture or I have a passion for the music? Um, it's an honor to be able to tell these stories. Um, but I definitely have times where I question it myself, um, why, why I may be the right person or why I'm the wrong person to be telling the story. And for me, a lot of this is about documentary as an exploration, the process of documentary. I'd like to take a moment. Um, I don't know if, the, if, if you guys attended. There recently was a panel on this discussion called How Can We Create a Just and Equitable Film Industry? Um, Stanley Nelson, Don Porter, Yance Ford, and Peter Nix were a part of this. Um, and they discussed in particular the black experience in the film industry and what was needed to change to elevate black voices and filmmakers of color. There's something early on that Stanley Nelson, uh, that he said that really, uh, it really stuck out for me. It resonated, but it also, um, it also really caused me to question uh, the work that I do, but also question what he said. I'd like to take a moment to read this. Um, I'm going to read directly what Stanley said in this panel discussion. One of the things that I believe and we believe at Firelight is that people need to tell their own stories, whether they be white, black, brown, Asian. People need to be able to tell their own stories. We're in this moment where people are constantly saying, we support Black Lives Matter. We support change. But what does that actually mean? Let's talk about that a little bit. One of the things that white filmmakers can do is get out of the way and help black filmmakers, filmmakers of color, tell their own story. We get weekly, almost daily, white filmmakers contacting us and saying, where can I get an associate producer? And it's also because they're working on a project about people with color. And so they want to have that window dressing. What they need to do is work with that person as an equal, at the very least, 
or just mentor them to help them make these projects. That's our feeling at Firelight. We are tired of other people telling our story. Now, of course, without speaking for Stanley, when you hear this, what is your interpretation of what's going on here? What is, what is he saying here? He's saying what we all think. <laughs> Thank God he, he's, you know, our God, the Godfather of not yeah. giving a fuck. Can I swear on your podcast? Chris? Please. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's gotten to that place in his career where he can just say this shit, you know? Yeah. And I personally, it's it's hard for me to think of any filmmakers that I know who are people of color who didn't make their first film from some kind of a place of wanting to change a narrative about mm. something personal to them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how that's why I'm a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker because I grew up out of a revolution in a country where the only Iranians I ever saw on my screen were crazy, bearded, Islamic, you know, like that's not who my people are. Yeah. That's not and my experience. I don't know any Iranians like that, right? And so it was an act of self-definition and an act of claiming narrative power, hmm. um, which is super profound, right? If it is super profound how we define people. Um, so I think what Stanley is saying is just like in the larger space outside of um, documentary filmmaking, um, it, it's been an out of balance ecosystem for a really long time, right? And so when when Stanley says, get out of the way or use your privilege and not access to opportunity and power to bring forward someone, not as window dressing, but truly as an equal to, to, to help them. It, it's a, you know, it's like me, you know, why do I recycle? I recycle because there's a greater good in my action, in my personal action you know, collectively, if we all took a small personal action, we can mm. actually make some kind of a transformative change. And I think that's what Stanley's calling for. Um, and I, I think many of us feel that way. And um, we're starting to get brave enough, more and more of us to just say it out loud. Grace? I want to get back to that, but but please, Grace. I don't know. March said it for me. Uh, yeah, he, he's just like speaking plainly. And, um, you know, I think it's, one of the things that occurred to me when um, you were reading that and what Mar when Marge was speaking was, you know, so much of the films I've made, it's yeah. kind of correcting what has come before, right? And I've worked on projects where, you know, um, one of the very first jobs I had was working for this, who she's considered the godmother of Asian American documentaries, Lonnie Ding. She poured her entire, you know, life and soul into documenting like the Asian American, early Asian American immigrants, and mm -hmm. you know, um, somebody like I won't say, well, I'll say his name, Bill Moyers comes around and wants to make a series about Chinese Americans, and he gets all the money. I'm like, how how did right. that happen? You know, right. so it's constantly watching not only you know other stories of people who should be telling the stories get um, passed over for somebody with a name or more resources. And then, you know, you know, for us, like it shouldn't have been this hard to make and she could be next. I think mm. it was a huge success. It was very ambitious, but you know, given our track records, it shouldn't have been this difficult for people. Yeah, right. To it, right. And I think that's the constant struggle we're facing, you know, like, ah, oh, divert, you know, I've had people say to me like, ah, oh, it's diverse enough, you know? 
Um, mm. And I just feel like this is the prevailing attitude of people who are commissioning work or producers or, you know, people who are the gatekeepers and it's just not acceptable. So I, this is a perfect instance where I, I'm, I'm hopeful that you can educate me and help me a little bit here because when I, when I heard Stanley say this, while I understand a bit, certainly a bit, or I, I, I hope I understand some of the sentiment here, um, what, what I found challenging was that I thought, you know, isn't that a kind of censorship in a way that he's presenting by dictating who, what, what races and what stories people of one culture or race can tell about other cultures or, or race? Isn't he effectively telling me, Chris, you can't tell that story about the most famous singer in Cambodia? A Cambodian should. And if they can't, you should teach them. You should empower them. I struggle with that. And I'm not sure I entirely agree with that because for one, isn't the whole notion an attraction for many of us doc filmmakers um, about exploration, further exploring a topic or a policy, a passion, a culture that we might like ourselves to have a more fuller understanding about. So help me with that because it does feel like he's saying, uh-uh, you can't do that. You can't tell that story. Okay. Help me, ladies. I'm going to help you, Chris. Yeah. I, I say it from a place of um, I don't 100%. really know you and I come you know, with compassion for people. Absolutely. But many people could say that the colonization of the world came from a sense of an exploration of wanting to dig into other things that right and that that has been a deeply and profoundly extractive and mm -hmm. corrosive process where generations afterwards yeah. entire countries are still suffering from the the internalization of what a, a, colo a colonial attitude did to them about their own sense of identity oh, yeah. right? that oh, also yeah. came from a desire to explore right and so um i don't think it's censorship i i mean i don't think it's censorship first of all as far as far as i know stanley has no actual power or authority he doesn't have the ability to commission to 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 exact fines or write tickets or send people to documentary jail these things don't exist <laughs> right and i guarantee you that um, that feeling that you're feeling about yeah. being told what you can and can't do, which yeah. is sort of interfering with your sense of um, everything should be open to me if I want it, it, it has been felt by Stanley Nelson thousands of times about stories he's wanted to tell. Right. Yeah, right. Sure. Right? So that's the thing. So, so the phrase that I keep coming back to. Yeah over and over again inside documentary outside documentary in this moment that we're all in mm -hmm. is a simple thought and you know i think about it 20 times a day when yeah. you are accustomed to privilege equality feels like oppression and yeah. you and many folks like you you know with no bad you know i don't think that you're you have an, a bad intention of course not but you're you've been accustomed to sort of it's like the buffet of the world right i can right. come and pick whatever i fancy eating right now you know and then if someone says actually these uh, grapes are just for you know brown skinned people suddenly you're like what do you mean i can't yeah. have the grapes right sure sure <laughs> you know so it's it's um that's what it is it, yeah it's a it's a pushing back a, a correction as grace said of a system yeah and suddenly folks who've had full access to the full buffet all the time in a very short amount of time that this dialogue has been kind of prevalent in our business yeah. they're suddenly like whoa i feel like this is you know uh, unfair to me and it 
it shows a la an actual complete lack of understanding of what kind of unfairness exists in our system mm. towards all the other kinds of people who encounter at every step an obstacle. Right. I'll, right. I'll share a little story since um, Chris, you yeah. shared earlier that you, you know, taught English in Korea after college. <laughs> yeah. I went to Korea after college to, you know, learn about my history and my parents were moving back to Korea. I didn't really speak Korean either, so yeah. I also taught English, but you know, this is a perfect example of, you know, people didn't want me to be the English teacher because I wasn't white. Right, you know, right. even though I was born and raised in the United States, English oh, yeah. is my first language. You know, you have that privilege, you probably got paid more than I did you know, because you're an authentic looking American. And I think this is, you know, this is like an example of the correction that I'm talking about, you know, yeah. that, you know, you may not realize it because you get to go to this country and experience it. And I'm sure it's difficult, it's challenging, right? Um, but it's just one example of where this inequality exists, you know, and this kind of, it's a colonizing mentality, you know, mm. like white equals better, right? And I think that's what some somebody like, you know, maybe these Cambodian Americans you're referring to, you're getting to tell this story. Um, and I'm sure, you know, by all means, go ahead. But I would also ask, like, who, why are you telling the story, mm -hmm. you know, and who's helping you tell this story? Like, what are your intentions? And if you can answer those questions, fine, but you should be oh, able yeah. to answer those questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're asking me that, I would say that uh, it's a Cambodian crew that I generally work with or my wife and I generally work with. Um, why? Uh, I would say why I have an interest in telling the stories in South and Southeast Asia is a really, a really simple one. Um, it's it's I feel like it's an opportunity to raise consciousness and awareness um, about communities and cultures that might not have an opportunity to do that. That's that's my sort of simplistic way of saying, yeah, it, that's my interest in doing it. I want to raise awareness um, of people and their stories in that part of the world. Listen, I mean, I'll say this as well, Chris. I think yeah. that um, this stuff can come off as very kind of black and white, you know, very like, you know, it's this or it's that. As Grace just said, there are plenty of people and examples that I can also think of where yeah. people have really approach the uh, um, storytelling about a different culture than their own in um, in an authentic way. They've gone and they've, you know, immersed themselves. They've lived there for many years, you know, yeah. there's other ways. And, 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 and also I think that in this country, there's a particular, because our documentary business here is just so strange and mercurial in the way that it is, right? <laughs> yeah. I think there's an extra thing. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I, I lived, I've lived half my life in England and half my life now in the United States. Yeah. And race is a completely different, it's just a, di it's just a different kettle of fish over My here. wife's from the UK, totally. It's yeah. amazing the conversations yeah. we have. Yeah. So, so, and that's not to say there isn't racism everywhere because there is, but it yeah. just manifests differently in a structural kind of access way. Right. Um, And so I think that you know, it's not about like you, you you can't tell those stories or you shouldn't tell those stories, but it's really about a, a self-interrogation, the process of self-interrogation. Mm. You know, we've been having this larger conversation about race right now. I've had, you know, a number of friends call me who are white men saying, oh, am I doing something wrong? You know, I thought I gave, I gave, I hired this person that time and I did this thing that time. Right. 
And I think that the, the question isn't, please provide me with a laundry list of all the ways in which you were a good person. Yeah. That, that's kind of a pointless activity. The more important thing is what are all the ways from this minute moving forward mm. where you can be conscious of always opening more opportunity, always letting other voices lead. You know, how, how can you find the next Riti Pan, right? And, yeah. and oh, yeah. the funding and the access on whatever it is that you're able to bring, right? To empower somebody to tell their own story. I have to say last night I watched a, this is so stupid, but I'm just gonna share it. So, um, you know, there is still a staggering lack of representation of Iranians on our screens, right? My whole life, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, 48, pushing 49. I, it's just a handful. In less than a day, I could sit yeah. and watch back end to end all the representations I've ever seen of my right. people on screens, right? So, <laughs> you know, yeah. so this is, we just live with this stuff. This is the world. We are stuck in these identities and we are stuck in the system that treats us how it treats us. And, yeah. and you know, um, so it's just a, a, a self-interrogation for other people. Like, oh, what, what, what do I not know, right? You know what you know, but what do you not know about the other side of the experience? Yeah. And how yeah. could you continue to do better? You may have been an A student. How do you become an A plus student? Yeah, I mean, look, it's an interesting moment. In the end, one set of people have now been emboldened to not stay silent in these paradigms. Mm. And uh, that's going to make another set of people uncomfortable because suddenly they're hearing things that, you know, have been thought but not said previously and yeah. um you can't squeeze that stuff back in the toothpaste tube and so we're gonna have to find a way as a community of people to reconcile these differences yeah. uh, another thing that stanley said in that conversation which has stayed with me is he said there's just enough of a hole where a few of us have managed to claw our way through because sure. if there weren't any of us we'd look around and we'd be like what the hell is wrong why are all these people white but he's like there's just enough of us that people can say, well, what about Stanley Nelson? What about Dawn Porter, right? Um, that That is the situation that we're in. There's enough what about that, that, that we can say, well, there, of course there's representation, right? Yeah. But um, outside of the structures of traditional white documentary are these thriving communities, one of which Grace founded and, and uh, ADOC, Brown Girls Doc Mafia, Firelight is another home. There's a thriving, pulsing community of non-white filmmakers who choose to keep their talent and their conversation in those spaces so that they don't have to continually explain while, why their desire to self-determine the narratives about themselves mm, mm. Is, is or isn't a problem for anyone else. And we're just tired of that. And so mm. withdrawn into our own spaces and we're just getting busy doing the work. You know, I think part of it is more about the filmmakers. You know, one of the reasons Asian American Documentary Network, we started it is, you know, I've been doing this for a while and so yeah. have several of, several of us. And, you know, these same complaints or, you know, critiques that we have of the industry, it's just like, why do we keep talking about this? You mm. know, like we have to do something to change it. You know, part of it is sharing resources with younger filmmakers so they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Part of yeah. it is mentoring people so they know how to, you know, navigate systems, understand how to, you know, it's not easy to have a career in documentary filmmaking. Um, and some of it is just to have a place to vent, you know, I mean, it's, it's yeah, a place right. to sort of express frustrations with the system because the system isn't working, right? Yeah, I mean, it, if there's such inequality that exists, you know, people need a place to, you know, talk about it. And one of the things that was so surprising is when we, you know, we had our first kind of 
informal gathering at the Getting Real conference in 2016. And, you know, a few of us just decided, let's get together all the Asian American documentary filmmakers we know and have them meet here. It's a place where people are meeting anyway. We thought maybe 30 people would come, but like 80 people showed up and it was just this opportunity for people to like see each other, right? Um, And we organize, we're national, we organize online, we meet on Slack, right? And it's just a place for people. So many people have said, I didn't know that there was somebody else like me, you know, like we're also (laughs) massively isolated in terms of the work we do, or, you know, whether it's in journalism or documentary or podcasts or whatever. Right. And it's just a place for people to find community. And I think, you know, all of these, like the D word, Brown Girls, Doc Mafia, it exists because it's, it's lonely. (laughs) You know, this profession is lonely and it's also not um, always friendly. And I think in this moment where we're, everybody is, you know, kind of thinking about everything you know yeah. systems and structures yeah. it's also provided a place for um you know deeper discussions to be had you know even within adoc we talk about anti-black racism right mm. and how um how can we move beyond that like we're not just you know banding together because we're all asian american but we're also examining you know what are we doing that's contributing to you know anti what can we, how can we be more anti-racist? I feel like I could, I could talk with the both of you um, for a heck of a lot longer than a 30 minute segment. Um, I appreciate the both of you so much taking time to really share your experiences, you know, with, with a greater documentary community with this podcast before we, before we, before we do leave um, both my John and Grace, what 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 have I missed in this conversation that you feel like you know what Chris you need to know this or or your, your other documentary filmmakers should know this about this discussion what would that be? Um, I think it's but John, you're laughing. Tell me about I, that. I, what's what's uh, happening? I mean, I just think it's a time for people to take some responsibility for a, a true examination of how of the, of their responsibilities and the larger paradigms at play around them. Um, uh, at some point I said to Greg, you know, I, this conversation that you and I just had, Chris, I have yeah. this conversation a shocking number of times. And, and oh, I can only imagine. It's, it's got to be completely tiresome. I yeah, can I only imagine. I said, why don't you just do a 10 minute YouTube video and then you can just give people your business card and put the link to the <laughs> YouTube And then once they've watched it, you know, then they, then you can have the conversation, right? So, and I'm just yeah. one person who feels this way. Yeah. So, um, Chris, can you make this discussion go viral so we don't have to do it again? Oh God! <laughs> we just, you know, all of us, we, the collective, we, yeah. who are not the dominance, yeah, are tired of having to say over and over and over again that we, why do we count less? Why mm. do you know? And why does our counting equally? cause us to then have us to spend additional time and effort um discussing why that's the case (laughs) making comfortable the white person in the room who got felt like their foot got trodden Mm. i do that a lot right it's happening on the d word right now right oh yeah oh yeah and it's incredibly frustrating it's um and 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 really sort of tiring and some of us have more bandwidth to just keep getting up on that soapbox and and doing it um, but some people don't have that bandwidth because yeah. because life yeah. is actually really much harder. If you're a black person in America today, you are having a much harder time than I'm having sitting here in my desk in LA. Oh, yeah. 
And on top of that, to have to continually explain (laughs) your basic worth is exhausting. And so if people actually genuinely want to care and understand about this thing, the first place to do is uh, to start with that is self-introspection, reading, listening to what other folks are saying, um, and then being willing to do some work. I I made a film many years ago about uh, people from two sides of conflicts to live, who try to come to live with each other. And the tagline for the film was, in order to make peace with my enemy, I have to go to war with myself. Yeah. And I think that that applies in this situation too. In order to make space for the other person, one has to first go inside and really self-interrogate in ways that may be uncomfortable. Um, but that's it's very how, Buddhist. How <laughs> that's very things. Buddhist. <laughs> how we yeah. get through things. And yeah. I made a film about Grace Lee Boggs, the Chinese yeah. American activist in the Black community. And you know, there's a little section in there where she also talks about, I mean, really paraphrasing, like change yourself to change the world. This woman yeah. has gone through multiple social movements, revolutions, rebellions. Um, you know, I, I really, you know, think about her a lot. And I don't spend a lot of time educating white people about how to act in this moment. Mm. Like this is the most I've spent like in the last, you know, Marge is much better at it, you know, but I prefer to, you know, nurture like ADOC, right? Like I, I want to have that conversation yeah. there, but I think yeah. it's important to have this conversation as well, but perhaps you should have it with other white documentary filmmakers, right? Maybe a, a you know, conversation can spur out of this. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you've been hearing that a lot more, I think, in the past month or two, which is this idea of, you know, find it within yourself. And you know what? The white community needs to be having this this, this discussion a lot more. It's it's There's only so much people of color or minorities in, in the U.S. in particular can be having this discussion or it can be holding your hand through this. At some point, the white community needs to be having these discussions. You know, if that, I know you know what I'm saying, but it's not as eloquent as I'm sure my John would say, but you understand the sentiment here. Yeah, I mean, we, we think that there's a courageous conversation that must be led about white by white people about the role that whiteness and white dominance has taken in the shaping of narratives that define other people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I see lots of white people around me. I mean, there's plenty of stories to be told about white people and, yeah. and white experience. You know, there's no reason to be feeling like there aren't plenty of stories to be told in yeah. ways that reflect yourselves also. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't thank the both of you enough for for coming on today. It's it's absolutely been a pleasure. I should say, maybe I should have said this at the outset. Um, in many ways, I was absolutely petrified to have this conversation, but I also wanted to remain as open as I could to this. And it's such an important conversation to be having, um, as probably emotionally and psychically draining as this might be for for the two of you. Uh, having this conversation all the time. It's one that we needed to have in the documentary community, I think, conversation. And yeah, let's hope that this branches off into something much bigger and continues to open hearts and minds to this conversation. Thank you so much, Majan, and thank you, Grace, for coming on to The Documentary Life. Thank you. Appreciate it, Chris. And I assume you'll handle the hate mail. (laughs) Oh, my God. Go forward the hate mail. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Appreciate (laughs) it. Thank you.
Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.